After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, guys, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly on to you. I haven't skipped a beat using Mint Mobile services. I have a great service even when I'm traveling for over less than 70% of what I was paying before. Listen to Uncle Chael and say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash chael. That's mintmobile.com slash chael. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash chael. $45 upfront payment required. That's equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your first stop for the best in Western style. And by the way, you don't have to be into the Western look to grab a good-looking pair of boots. I recently got a pair of ostrich skin round-tip boots, and I'm warm with my suit. These boots are so versatile that I can throw them on with a full head-to-toe suit. And Anthony Smith came right up to me and he's asking me where I got them. Well, I told him the only place to get them, Tacovas. And they have a seasonal limited edition offering. It's right now, this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, accessory, and more. My wife just surprised me with the ostrich wallet and a belt for my birthday, in case you've seen me. I feel like I look pretty sharp in it. I truly do. And Tacova's has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary beverage or two, and shop for new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience quite like it. If you can't make it into the store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and they ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your favorite pair of boots today. What's happening, guys? Happy Friday. 
and thank you for joining another special episode of your welcome i hope you're having a great week coming up on today's show i'll answer a question that one of you guys asked me i'll tell you about henry cejudo the coach the lightweight title picture and a whole lot more all that later in the show but i want to begin today by continuing the conversation about Francis Ngano and what his future might hold in the UFC. Francis Ngano, guys, what happens now? And so I told you guys my own story about Francis, right? Story about Francis, I come over here, I talk about Francis all the time. I wasn't crazy about a lot of things that he did. I thought Francis set himself up in a very negative way to, for his hardest opponent, which was Surreal Gone. Surreal Gone was created and became a number one contender and even was given a, a position to be in a championship fight, let alone to grab the interim strap from decisions that Francis made. And if, in fact, Surreal was the greatest threat, that should be the last thing that should be done in the boardroom with the power of a pen and the bureaucracy by the champion, right? You want to keep those hard guys away. And we all know who it is. Sometimes you see the hardest guy. He got a number eight ranking. All right, great. People haven't figured out how good he is. I don't have to deal with him now, right? Everybody wants to talk about the top 10, but within the top 10, there's two categories. You got the top 10, but then you have the top five. The top five are the only ones fighting for world championships. So if you got a really good fighter, you can keep him out of the top five. Doesn't matter if he broke into the top 10. And I used to say these things. I used to talk about this. And I do think in hindsight, it would have been 2020. Don't forget, Surreal Gone, when they actually said, let's get it on, was the betting favorite. Ever so slight, but he was a betting favorite. After that fight was done, it did look like that was the most competitive fight that Francis has had in a meaningful period of time. So I do think that I'm right that Francis, for decisions that he made, created the opportunity for what went on to be his hardest opponent. Now, you might be able to brush that off. Because all went well, Francis still has the belt. I think that my point still stands. So I was saying these kinds of things. I'm talking about Francis. I finally meet Francis. Face to face with the Predator. We had a quick conversation. But it was impactful upon me. I, I learned some things about Francis. Staring there, talking with him, looking in his eyes. I realized things that I didn't know before. Like, he's a human being. He has feelings. He has emotions. Things bother him. They make him sad. They make him happy. He's a human being. You may think that that's obvious, but until you meet Francis, come on, because you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you see these guys, you only see them on TV. They're bigger than life. Their life is going great. Francis looks the way I wish I looked and has achieved what I wished I had achieved. You get guys like that. And you forget that they're just a guy like you, working hard, trying to make their way through, listening to what other people are saying about them, and sometimes it makes them feel good, and sometimes it brings them down. I got all of this in this quick conversation with Francis. And it changed the way that I spoke about Francis. Somewhere along the way, I get a call from Francis's coach, Eric, who couldn't have been a better guy. They watch the show, and they say, Chael, there is times where you're speculating on Francis, and you're wrong. There's a lot of times that you're right, but there's some that you're wrong. And you're giving an opinion to people that's wrong in the future. Would you just call? We'll make you a deal. We will always take your call. We will always answer your questions in exchange. Don't go put something out there unless you do follow up. Now, that's pretty reasonable. It's pretty reasonable. I'm about to do it right now, and I haven't called them. But why? Why would I not call Eric when I told Yes, I'll talk to you before I talk about your client. Why? I'm just speculating. I'm just admitting I'm speculating. 
I'm coming to you guys full well saying I don't know the intricacies of where Francis is at. And instead of calling Eric and getting to the bottom of it, that will come another day. I'm just for now, I'm guessing. And I think that's okay because we're all guessing, right? None of us know. The greatest insight that any of us got into the contractual standing, Francis Ngannou and the company, UFC, was in a form of a question by Kevin Ioli on Saturday night at the post-fight press conference where Kevin Ioli said to Francis, my understanding is if you sit, you sit until December and then you are free to do whatever you want. I don't fully know what to make of that, and I am admitting I'm speculating and guessing, but it sounds to me like Francis has one more fight. Something because of the championship clause, if he was to go out there and do one more fight, he could be free instantly, or I'm wrong and he has no more fights. Because there's two ways to interpret what little information Kevin Ioli did reveal, but Kevin did it in the form of a question, hey Francis, if you don't fight, if you can't come to terms with the UFC... The exclusive negotiating period is going to take you X amount of time, which was estimated to be into December. But that is a very different question because now you're talking about Francis does not have a contract at all. He's just in an exclusive negotiating period. And that's what I'm coming to speculate with you guys on. And I'm asking, if you've got inside information, yes, I'll get a hold of Eric sooner or later. I just don't know that putting Eric in that position right now and then coming and blabbing to you guys is right. So let's have some conversation, but let's take a look at it in a couple of different angles. One of which is that we haven't even uncovered it yet, and we've taken too much from Kevin Ioli's statement. Mm, that's possible. That is possible. But secondly, is Francis' contract in fact done? And all he is is in this purgatory, known as a uh, exclusive negotiation period, which could take all the way till December to be exhausted, because if it is, then he's not the champion, is he? Boy, that'd be rude. I sure don't want to see Francis lose his belt like that. But it is a company championship. For sure. Dana White was tested on this in court under oath opposite BJ Penn. Do you guys remember that? Remember when BJ Penn sued the UFC? And they were talking about the judge wanted a clarification. Is this a world title? And Dana had to say, well, it's our title. It's a UFC title. The name of that title is World Championship, but it's, it's my belt. I'll give it and I'll take it. I'll create new opportunities, new weight class, interim. I'll do what I want. It's my organization's belt, and I have the right to do that with people that are under contract with the organization. The judge was fine with that. No problem. But now we've got it on the record, and I'm going to pull that record back out now because if Francis is not under contract, is he the champion? And if so, how? Francis being the champion is a tremendous deal. Tremendous honor and achievement and accomplishment by him. The ultimate that you could possibly gain. And champ, champ is never going to be an option for Francis because he can't make any other weight class. So he is truly at the pinnacle. I don't wish to take that from him, but make sure as you appreciate that and as you value that, that you understand how many other guys are on the roster with the same dream doing the same work, and whether they're doing it as well, whether they had that ma magic wand of DNA spread over them or not, they have the same goals, the same dreams, the same drives, and they cannot become champion if somebody is already it. I bring that to you. You guys remember what St. Pierre did. Everybody was mad at St. Pierre until you thought about it for a week, and you go, oh my God, George is a star. Look at what he did. George wins the 185-pound championship. He holds on to that thing for one week. He has contractually one year. 
He could have done, oh, you know, I'm sore. Oh, I don't feel good. He could have done what all sorts of guys do. So they get all the photo ops and all the money and all the sponsorships and all the attention for being the champion. George gave the damn thing back seven days later. To a great detriment to him. But he did it for the boys. He did it for the people. His peers, his enemies, his opponents. He did it for them because he knew that they had a dream. And he was sitting on it. It was one of the great moves that St. Pierre has ever done. And when you hear people always praising George St. Pierre, that is one of the reasons right there, that move, that act of selflessness. I do not suggest for you that that's what Francis needs to do. What I'm suggesting for you is if Francis had an interim belt put up within his division, all because he missed one date, and that date was only a few months removed. It's only a few months removed from him capturing that thing from Stipe Miocic. The date in Houston against Derek Lewis, who was going to top the bill. So they bring in Surreal, they make it for the interim championship. If that happened to him in just a few months removed, and now we're looking at, based on what Ioli asked, and based on what Francis did say, yes, you understand right, Kevin? You're talking about 12 months. What's the difference, guys? If we know we're going to have to fight for this thing before 12 months is up, if we know that Francis isn't going to do it, the sooner we get it back, the better. This was tested with Henry Cejudo. UFC 246 gets his hand raised against Dominic Cruz, retires in the ring. We all thought it was a negotiation ploy. Dana didn't call him on it. Dana said, you go think about that. I'm going to be traveling a little bit. I'm on the road. Two Tuesdays from now, I'm going to be in a matchmaker's meeting. I am going to make a title fight for 135. If you are half of that title fight, no problem. I'll get you an opponent. If you're not, I'll find two guys but I'm not going to hold up the morale of the locker room. So this has been tested before, but never in a situation. And why? How can you take the belt away from Henry? All Henry did is say into a microphone, I'm done. That's it. That's all it takes. Yes, that's it. That's all that it takes. Francis did not do that. They had to get the paperwork in line and off they move in the 135 pound division. If Francis is in that same spot, except the paperwork and the contract is exhausted, can he be champion? Can he be? He most certainly is, and he most certainly was. Can he continue to be? I'm asking the question. And if you're going to tell me yes, please submit an example in the past where that's happened. Because I just followed Journalism 101. I made three different claims, but I cited three different historical precedents for my claims. Now, other option. We got this all wrong. We got this wrong. He's still got a fight left. He doesn't have to do the fight. If he doesn't do the fight, and that's what runs him to December, then you put in the exclusive negotiation period, which is very possible. It's not the way that it was worded from Kevin and confirmed by Francis. However, I used to have those exact same contracts. They're boilerplate. That's why nobody has a carve-out for boxing. That's why Francis would need a car. Everybody's got the exact same contract. You got some different numbers. You got a different duration. You got a different name of Social Security on there somewhere. It's the same contract called Boilerplate. When I had that contract, it was a three-months exclusive non-negotiation period. So I don't know how Francis would have a 12-month. I don't understand that. Not to mention it wouldn't be 12, it would be 11. The whole thing would just be very weird. So there is a chance that he still has a fight. Don't think you're getting lost in the minutiae here because if he does, in fact, have a fight, whether he does it or not, if he, in fact, has a fight, they should not strip him. There should be dialogue going on. And even if that dialogue is, is two cars running head-to-head -head in each other at full speed, it doesn't matter. X amount of time has to go by. 
He has not said I'm retired like Dominic Cruz. He did not say I'm going to do something else like anybody else. And if he does have one active fight, then everything that I said about he should be stripped or he's not even eligible to be champion is out the window. And I don't have that answer. I don't have the answer, but I don't think you do either. Kevin Ioli gave us the greatest reveal into the interworkings of Francis Ngannou's contract by saying, if you do nothing and don't come to terms, you're still under contract until December. Is that true? It was a question. And Francis said yes. So I don't know that we quite have the right to read into the fact that he doesn't, in fact, have a fight. If he doesn't have a fight, I do have to stand by that, guys. If you don't have a fight and you're not with the organization, you can't, you, right? You can't be champion. You just can't. The other side of it is if he does have a fight lined up, he's just choosing not to do it. His contract doesn't exhaust until December. In the absence of doing that fight, they should not take it from him, at least not now. X amount of time has to go by. Good faith. Operate in it. But it does seem as though Francis has dug in here. It does seem as though at some point we have to take a guy at his word. Dana did not hold Henry Cejudo to his word. Not the night he said it. Dana White did not hold Khabib Nurmagomedov to his word. Not the night he said it. He worked on it. And he worked on it. And he worked on it. And the words never changed. Dana became the mayor of Get the Hintville. And he moved on with business. But he's not there yet with Francis. Appears to have a very open mind. In fact, Dana's only said one thing about this. Dana gets in trouble because he didn't go to the press conference. You guys don't know where he was. You don't know why he wasn't at the press conference. He didn't put the belt on him. He looks like a big jerk. You don't know why he didn't put the belt on him. You don't know where he was. Dana said one thing since this fight. You want to know what he said? He said it to TMZ. And you want to know what Dana's quote was? We're going to figure it out. We're going to sit down with Francis. We're going to figure it out. He said nothing else. But that is not the statement or an attitude of somebody who isn't willing to work. So what do you do with Francis in the meanwhile? I think it would be very wise for the, uh, the current players in that division to start looking at the interim route. Start positioning and aligning themselves. I think John Jones is very fair game to be called out by somebody else. Though Stipe Miocic refuses to speak up for himself, he's got a whole army out here and we're not going to let it slide if he just gets overlooked, right? I mean, I think there's some things that are coming together. I think there's some opportunities to be had. I think that an interim championship is very possible, which would give an opportunity for two guys, neither of which, to this point, we've heard from. Staying in the heavyweight division, I received a message from a fan this week. I love this question, so I thought I'd bring it to you guys. And by the way, if you ever have any questions, you can submit them over to my website, chaelsonnen.com. Hey, Chael. Jeff from Toronto. Just watched your video on the best heavyweight fighter in the world is, implying John Jones still is that because John Jones is always the best, which he is. That being said, and I still remember when you put that video of, I'm done doubting John Jones, and it would be a fool to doubt him. That being said, I understand he's gained the weight. I understand he's done the work to change his, his physiology, but he never fought guys that are this big or hit this hard. Discuss. Well, thank you, Captain Obvious. I'm well aware of that. I've got to tell you, though, right from Jump Street, there's not very many very big guys that you can tell me that have ever done real well in sport of combat. In all fairness, now you could look to right now with Tyson Fury, but you'll even remember the size discrepancy between Fury and his last opponent that was Deontay Wilder. 
You'll think of Mike Tyson, who was 220 pounds in his prime. You'll think of Cain Velasquez, probably the, the greatest heavyweight we've ever seen, at 240 pounds, or the longest reigning, most defending heavyweight we've ever seen, Stipe Miocic, who's south of 235. So I only bring that to you because I do hear that a lot. I mean, like, that talk will never go over. These guys are so big, and these guys hit so hard. And nobody ever wants to tell the other side of the story, which is they get exhausted fast. Their footwork is slow. They're not overly dynamic. You're not going to see spinning wheel kicks and backwards elbow. You're just not going to see flying knees. You're not going to see a lot of techniques. The bigger the guy, the more mobilized he is. And John Jones has never fought anybody this big. Look, John Jones agrees with you. So it's a little bit weird that I'm disagreeing with you and John when John's the one that has to go out there and do it. John Jones agrees with you that he needs a little bit of size, but I will correct you in that while you have not seen John compete with these big boys, John has trained with them for a meaningful period of time. Brendan Schaub comes to mind. Travis Brown comes to mind. Alistair Overeem comes to mind. Andre Orlovsky on a daily basis comes to mind. John, when he was at Jackson Wink, so were some of the best big guys in the business. And John was doing quite well. I have to leave it at that, right? Practice room stories. But John was doing quite well at heavyweight. And that's back when John is in striking distance of making 205 pounds. That's before John learned how to really deal with somebody that's a big guy. How to keep somebody like that down. How to get them there in the first place. Look, I'm not fully dismissing your point. I can't because John agrees with it. But I can tell you, I fought at 185 pounds for world championships. I fought at 205 pounds for a world championship. I was in the semi of the heavyweight bracket fighting for world championships. All tough guys, all very dangerous. The bigger you got, the easier the work was. And yes, they hit harder. And yes, they were harder to move. But if you go through the checklist that you want in fighting, I mean, you're talking about a game of skill, of conditioning, and of luck. In fairness, those are your first three. And who hits harder? That's on the list somewhere. Somewhere that's on the list. But I can remember the days when I was in high school. Us boys never fought. We went into the weight room. If one guy could bench 200 pounds and you could only bench 170, he was stronger than you. Therefore, he was better. And all of us followed that same code. We didn't have another one. Nobody had told us another one. And this whole bigger is better idea, and I realize, you know, you've got Francis up there right now. you got Fury up there right now. But historically speaking, Randy Couture, heavyweight champion, 220 pounds. And we can play this game all day. It's not those really big guys. We go a little bit further. It's never those really big guys. I mean, you're talking about you're 10 years separated between the Corellans and the Rulons of the world and the rest of the field. So I only bring that to you just because it's the oldest adage, right? That started on the playground when some dude's kid got his ass kicked. And when that guy had to go to work the next day and explain why little Timmy's got a black eye, he then adds for his buddies, well, but the kid he fought was 20 pounds bigger or he was a year older, right? Then there's this weird tipping point. You get into the pros and all of a sudden whoever's younger has the advantage. I didn't grow up that way. When I was a senior, there wasn't a freshman walking the lands that I had to worry about. But somewhere later in life, that guy who was a freshman when I was a senior, now I'm supposed, to, I'm, get, I'm supposed to give him some kind of an edge. I only bring that to you because you are correct in that John has not fought guys this big or that hit that hard. But those guys haven't fought anybody like John that's going to kick you in the mouth while punching you in the knee at the same time. Who has equal stand-up to ground skills. Who, if they get under, John will change you.
John's ground and pound will change you. Whenever you come into that match, when John gets on top of you, you get up, you are now different. So I can't dismiss what you're saying. And you're talking about a puncher's chance. But I do think that speed, I do think that setups, I do think that movement, I do think that a diversity attack, I do think dynamicness within your attack are all boxes that you want to check prior to power. So going back to UFC 270, another storyline that many of you were talking about is the emergence of Henry Cejudo as an MMA coach. He's doing great work in Arizona. And because of that, I think we should give him his due. Henry Cejudo now has his second world champion, guys. Don't forget Wei Lee. Henry got credit for Wei Lee. Henry now has Figueredo. I didn't know this is what Henry wanted to do. In all fairness, when I first saw Wei Lee associated with Henry, I thought Henry was helping somebody else market. He was helping his coach, Captain E, or he was helping the owner of the gym. Or Henry was in there getting his own workouts, and somebody came with a camera. They thought the story was told better to capture Wei Lee and Henry and then say Henry was the coach. That's what I thought. But now John Jones has gone out and is training with Henry. And John Jones and Henry in the same training room doing workouts together. Like I mean, it's just a sight to see. And John is saying very good things, and he plans to go back and continue to get work at this gym. And now, this just in, Prohaska plans to train for Glover to share by going out to Arizona and training with Henry and John Jones. I love it. I would love to see those workouts. Some of the best fighting I've ever learned, not, not to mention I've ever seen, was in practice rooms like that. And the old Team Quest guys, I could name drop on you. Oh, I saw matches that were pay-per-view main events. Matt Lindland versus Evan Tanner. Evan Tanner versus Dan Henderson. Dan Henderson versus Randy Couture. Playing that game all the way through. Lieben versus Herman versus Quarry versus Horwich. Throw Chael in there. Josh Haynes over in the corner. Rico Rodriguez coming through. Boss Root and Don Fry. James Thompson. I mean, I could play this game forever. I saw these matches that you would only dream of. I would love to see Prohaska and John Jones. I think it would be a major confidence builder for Prohaska. I mean, if Prohaska has that opportunity to come and spar with John Jones, he has to get on the airplane. He has to take that. Because he's either going to find out, man, I'm lucky as hell that John is gone, or he's going to say, I can go with the best to have ever done it. It's one of these interesting spots for Prohaska, but let me focus on Jones. What is Jones getting out of that? And I do believe you can get a good workout anywhere. That could be John and Henry, just by example. But I've heard of some of John's workouts as of late. And he's in there with some very impressive partners, guys. If you heard some of the stuff I'm hearing about John and his training, really, really doing a great job. But none of the guys are big. None of the guys are heavyweights. And now they're talking about Prohaska coming here over here specifically to go with John. So I think John is going to be giving a lot of time to Prohaska. John's ticket is up, by the way. The only thing that we've ever had waiting on John and when he's going to return is we were waiting for Francis and Surreal. That is behind us. John's ticket can come out of this hat at any point now. What the stakes are going to be and who it's going to be, there's, that's always to figure out. But in terms of having a deadline that is now behind us and the return of John Jones being that more imminent, I wonder if John's getting there with some big guys. Because I've always taken John at his word. John's words were, I want to go up to heavyweight, but before I do it, I want to put on some size. I'm down for that experiment. 
That doesn't usually work. Nothing John Jones does usually works. It worked for John Jones. That's what being the youngest champion in history is all about. He went out and did something that nobody else could do. So I've got a very open mind to this. And John used to do a little bit better job of letting us in on things through his social media. Do a little bit better job of showing us on the scale, showing us what he looks like, showing us some of the workouts that he's doing. But as the time's gotten a little closer, he's gotten a little bit more reserved. And I am wondering who he's working out with because if he did, in fact, have one and only one reservation, which is what he stated, the size. Is he going with those big bodies? And if so, who? I mean, what does that gym look like? A gym that's got Wei Lee and Cejudo, Figueredo in it. But then you've got the opposite side, which is John Jones. Same achievement, same belt, same everything, very different body size. And now to, to the point that you've got to fly in workout partners like Prohaska, do we have some heavyweights in the room? I'm just asking a question. I'm just purely curious about the question. But do we have some heavyweights in the room? John is going to get better work with a light heavyweight. Contrary to popular belief, the heavier you go, the worse you go. Perhaps more dangerous. With that size, with that strength comes some power. But definitely a lower level of athlete. All the way up, but all the way down. So John is going to get better work and better movement than anything he's going to have to deal with in competition, regardless of the next opponent is, if he can go with the number one contender at light heavyweight, which is Pro Hoska, which is what John's going to do going to be great workouts. But will that satisfy the psychological piece that John had about having those bigger and heavier bodies? Now, I don't know everything about that room. He could have three or four heavyweights right now. I'm not declaring for you he doesn't. I'm asking the question, does he? Does he and who are they? Gyms are generally pretty specific. I mean, you'll have the gym that's excellent for women. You'll have the gym that's excellent for the lighter weights. You'll have the gym that's the big guy room. I don't know a ton about this gym. I know they got Henry. I know they got Wei Lee. I know they got Fig. And I know they got John and they're about to have Prohaska. Who do they have in between? Tell me a little more about this gym, guys. Tell me a little bit more. I want to know when they're practicing. I want to know if those are open workouts. I want to know if I can go down there and I can just take this in. I got to do that. I'm not vacation guy. I went on a vacation to San Diego. Coach Daryl calls me, tells me, says, hey, where are you staying? I tell him, turns out I'm 20 minutes away from Tiki and Paul Herrera's gym. Ortega and Dillashaw are getting ready to spar. And Juan Archuleta, three-way group with them, they're getting ready to spar. Boom, that was my vacation. I drove down there. I saw things that I could never talk about. But is, is this one of those things? Can I go in? Can I watch John Jones spar with Prohaska? What if I promise to keep my mouth shut? Can I do it then? Because that's some stuff that I really would like to see. I would like to see those movements, and I'm going to have a very good understanding. And think about the advantage that Prohaska is going to have. He's going to go with a guy who he never could work out with because that was a former potential rival who is now not a rival. He's actually a teammate. Oh, and by the way, he's got experience having been in there with the guy you're about to face, who was Glover Teixeira. I get the whole thing from Prohaska, and I like it. I think the training for John would be phenomenal, but does it satisfy the psychological piece that John has revealed to us he's not quite confident yet, which is the size? Do we got some big boys in there? Is John feeling that power? Is he getting underneath some of these guys? Is he taking them down? Is he keeping them there? Does it feel different? They're just questions, but if I've got these questions, John has the questions. I'm asking you, does the gym provide those answers? So I just finished talking about Henry Cejudo, who, as you guys recall, 
used to hold the bantamweight strap, much like our subject of our next piece, TJ Dillashaw, who said something this week and it caught my attention. TJ Dillashaw, guys, we got we got. I think it's bad news. I take it as bad news because I really like seeing TJ fight, and I also think that division and the sport are more fun when he's around. But I don't want to necessarily call it bad news. We just got some clarity on news. I'm talking about TJ being hurt. He hurt his leg. Fought Sandhagen with a bad leg or hurt his fight during the match with Sandhagen. Either way, waits two and a half years for his return, comes back, goes right back on the shelf. And we thought it was going to be a pretty quick turnaround. I mean, some people were talking like six months, and I know that doesn't sound wonderful, but it's usually four months between fights anyway. So it's not quite as bad as it sounds, not to mention when you're juxtaposing that with the break that he just had, which was an unwanted break that ended up being almost three years. All right. That's not the case. TJ came out. He said, man, this thing isn't healing the way I want it to. And he started really laying his case out, what he can do. I think he talked about some shadow boxing and things along these lines. But when TJ left, don't ever forget this. TJ left the 135-pound champion. That's a belt that he never lost. Now, he got some paperwork and they took it from him. But when he returns, there was talk that TJ was going to return right into a number one contendership fight. And that made a lot of people upset. But that is a belt that he never lost. So he's back in there to give somebody the chance to prove that they really are the best. And you don't want to take that from another guy. Either way, there was some pushback. Ends up not happening. TJ doesn't come back into a world title fight. But he does come in against Sandhagen, who's a damn tough night out. And it was a damn good fight. A lot of question marks around Dillashaw when he returns, like anybody. Number one, of course, being ring rust. What's he going to return like? Well, he returns in a five-round contest. He, he returns. He's got to come from, back. So he looked fantastic, and all of a sudden, everybody did go, okay, if TJ is now the number one contender and fight for a world title, we're all cool with it. Fine. That also is not what happened. But this was the narrative of the things being built around this, and now TJ is talking about it himself. Somebody made this suggestion to him about coming back and taking on Jose Aldo. TJ said, I'm not interested in Jose, although I want to fight for the world championship. I have no problem with that. But boy, there's a lot of guys not wanting to get in there with Jose Aldo. And Jose Aldo is in a little bit of a different category. He's very inspirational what he's doing right now. We can aspire to be like him. He's breaking a whole bunch of rules. The rule that you get tired of doing this. The rule that you lose motivation. The rule that the younger guy runs the world. One problem that Jose's got is he's already been in there with Peter Yawn. So it is a little bit tough at times to work Jose back into a world title fight. You can do everything else positive that you can for him. High ranking, great placement on the card, feature matches. Getting him in there for the world championship is tough, particularly when Peter Yawn is scheduled to take on Sterling. Now, the first person to understand the spot that he's in, the spot that I just laid out for you, the first one to get that is Aldo, which is why Aldo always talks about the championship, but he calls out somebody else. He talks about the championship, but he calls out what he's probably going to have to do to impress the decision makers to finally get to that ultimate goal, which is another world title shot. And Aldo has called a couple of names that I want to see. Dominic Cruz and now TJ Dillashaw. I think there's something very special that those three guys have. I think they are all the top fighters. I know they can win world championships. I know they can also lose to certain guys. But there is a nostalgia around those three. 
It just comes with longevity. It just comes with age. It just comes with success. The nostalgia is out of an absolute compliment. Guys that remember Dominic Cruz from the WEC days. Guys that know that Cruz grabbed that belt, took three and a half years off, came back and went right back and grabbed that belt again. I mean, there's a lot going on with these guys. I just personally would like to see them compete. That's what I'm sharing with you. I personally don't know why guys are overlooking Jose Aldo. I think it's very tough for anybody, no matter how accomplished, to step in and say, I've done enough and I should get a title shot when Jose's sitting right there going, come fight me. The only thing stopping Jose Aldo from having that world title fight is just the lack of parity. He's already fought Jan. He's trying to get an opportunity that he already had, and a lot of times you try to spread it around and give it to new blood, not to mention Jan and Sterling and have someone finish business so the dates just don't match up. But I think if anyone's going to try to come in and steal a title fight when Jose's standing over, raising his hand and saying, come see me, I think it's going to be a problem. Can TJ do it? Maybe. Because TJ's got a damn good argument, too. It just sounds a lot like Jose's. Well, I'm one of the best who ever done it. That sounds a lot like what Jose could say. Well, I've beaten everybody in front of me and I took out the top contenders. That sounds a lot like what Jose could say. Well, guys don't want to fight me and they turn me down and I'll take on all comers. That sounds a lot like what Jose's saying. You see where it becomes a problem? Like, we don't get it just, we want to be ethical. And we want to show an integrity to the sport and to the rankings. We can't just do that. It's the same guy, at least on paper. Two of the greats ever who both happen to be healthy and are aspiring to do the same thing. One thing Dillashaw's got that I see as an advantage is just parity. TJ has not been in there with Jan. TJ has not been in there with Sterling. How much of an advantage should that get him? Because, guys, this just got tested. Everything I just said is true, and I'm just talking about the history of the sport. A historical precedence, but it just got tested. It got tested by a young man named Glover Teixeira, who was too old. He did a good job. He had a good run, but he's already had his opportunity. All of those things, we put the son of a bitch in there, and he gets one of the great upsets in the history of the light heavyweight division. And it makes everybody feel good. And it all made us feel a little bit younger. It all made us feel like anything's possible, right? I just think that these guys are in a very similar spot. Now, Dominic Cruz is not calling for world title fights. I don't know why. Dominic Cruz has never lost a fight unless it was to a world champion. Are you guys aware of that? Dominic Cruz has only lost fights that were world title fights. Are you aware of that? That is incredible success for a guy on a two-fight win streak who's not even calling for main fights. You then have Jose Aldo who wants to spread it around. Anyone, anywhere, bring it. I'm going to go through you all until there's no conversation left. That's a pretty incredible attitude. And then you have Dillashaw, who was the champion and never got beat. But he's getting plagued with, with injury. You call that bad luck? Circumstance? What do you do? What do you do? Generally, when we're in a spot like this, just put Dominic aside just for the top, topic. We'll do Dillashaw and we'll do Aldo. Generally, what happens, guys? When you've got the same argument, you have an equal argument, you understand as logical and reasonable people, the cases for two guys and you go, I'm deadlocked. I'm deadlocked. Yes, TJ can fight for a world title. Yes, Jose can fight for a world title. Generally, we put them together. That's Jose's idea right now. I hope Jose gets his way. To close out today's show, 
My partner Ryan asked me a question about Colby Covington and his future, and I figured I'd answer it right now. What does Colby need to do now? We know what his marching orders are in the short term. He's got Masvidal. Colby wants to be the champion of the world. He has not given up on that goal or that dream, and that's very relevant. I have known him since he was a little boy. If somebody came to him and told him he cannot have that ultimate goal, number one, the absolute best, you are going to crush the spirit of an athlete who requires motivation. But if we were to back the tape up, we look at the calendar, take a good look at Madison Square Garden, Covington versus Usman, part two. Usman comes out on top. Now, that was a fantastic fight. It was very close. It had a little bit of controversy. It had everything that you would need to be able to get a rematch. Difference. It was the rematch. So now Usman's up 2-0. Now, Usman is playing by a different set of rules. Usman could duck Colby. He could avoid Colby. He could publicly come out and refuse to fight Colby. And he would have no shame. There would be no egg on his face. Nobody would tease him, none of his peers, no pressures. Because the rules are now different when you're talking about going and doing something for a third time. Hold that thought. I was under the impression that Colby agreed with what I just said. I was under the impression when that fight ended that Colby's chance and path to his world championship will come after Usman either gets beat or steps down that Colby could not go back through Usman. Colby does not agree at all. Colby is speaking up about this right now. Colby's declaring that he won that fight, that he should have won their first meeting, and that he will beat him in the next. He's talking about a best of four. I apologize, the best of seven. He's talking about everything under the sun that he needs to be talking about, and he's changing my mind. There's no rule anywhere that says you can't go after a guy for a third time. Maybe historically speaking, you have a hard time of finding other guys that did. It's not impossible. Volkanovsky Holloway, it's not impossible. So why couldn't Kobe do it? And if Kobe is going to do it, how do we get him there? Because guys, if there's anything that we learned at Madison Square Garden watching the 170-pound championship, is that we have the right two guys. Kobe and Usman have separated themselves from the pack. Your eyes showed you that. The judge's decision showed you that, and Kamara Usman told you that. Usman couldn't have been cooler about it. He said, man, that guy is tough as hell. I'm glad he's done. He could be champion someday. I mean, he's in my rear view. I don't have to think about him again. And for the most part, I do think that Usman's right. But if Colby's going to get back, if Colby's going to keep himself motivated, so he's going to keep driving himself to sacrifice and work as hard as he's working, he's got to have this goal and vision. And that can't just be what I said, which is Usman either gets beat or Usman steps down. Colby wants the third option, which is Usman stay right where you are because I'm coming after you. What does Colby get if he beats Masvidal? What does Masvidal get if he beats Colby? They're in the exact same spot. They both want to be champion, but they both lost to the champion twice. How do you get back to him? You have what is pretty clearly the number one contenders match. You get the BMF against the former interim champion. That's pretty clearly on paper, the top two guys, but it's not a number one contenders match for the reason that I just stated. How long does that have to be true? How many guys does Colby have to beat or use Masvidal? If you're a Masvidal fan, how many guys does Masvidal have to beat? And he can't ever return to that spot? You know where I'm going with this, guys. If you guys watch the channel, you know where I'm going with this. 
There is nothing more important right now than the BMF belt being up. The BMF champion is going to be in there. The championship was never on the line. He never lost the championship. I've had people try to correct me and tell me, no, Usman is the BMF champion. Because Masvidal had it and Usman beat him. That's not how titles work. I don't make these rules, by the way. This isn't Chael over here playing Jack Tunney, following the Chael rules. You, the title has to be up. It has to be declared. It has to be set ahead of time. Ric Flair got pinned plenty of times, but he kept the championship because there were non-title matches. I won a championship one time, or at least I beat the champion. I beat the champion. I did not become the champion because the champion had missed weight the day before, making it a non-title match. Because of me and because of what happened to me, the commissions have changed that rule. The champion is eligible to lose the championship if he is the one that misses weight. The challenger, if he misses weight and wins the fight, does not get the belt. But they, And that's the way it is right now. But guys, it hasn't always been that way. Literally, they did that because of the night it happened to me. They never envisioned that a champion would be the one coming in seven pounds above the agreed-upon limit. So it happened, happened one time, they changed the rule. But I bring that to you because you really can't push back on me and say, hey, Chael, Usman is actually the champion. You're talking about a linear champion, which is nothing more than a discussion. That's like saying that Usman's the GOAT. I agree with you that he is, but it's still just something that you say, and that's where the linear belt goes. The belt is not up unless the belt is put up. Colby wants to be champion. Colby was the, you want a riddle, guys? You want a riddle that you think I'm playing with you right now? Colby was the interim champion of the world, never lost, and no longer was the interim champion of the world. I am not kidding about that. One day, he's just no longer the champion without ever getting beat. And there was something about stripping an interim title that just went under the radar. I mean, if you would have done that with an undisputed title, in all fairness, but there was something about because it was the interim title, I never heard anybody speak up. Colby's yet to defend the interim championship because they didn't put it up. You got the interim champion taking on the BMF champion. This is a massive fight, but I have to re-ask the question for a third time. What is on the line? All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening each and every Wednesday and Friday and for subscribing to my YouTube channel. And if you don't already, remember to give me a follow on Twitter, at Chael Sonnen. Have a great weekend, guys. I'll be back on Wednesday. Until then, enjoy your weekends. I'm Chael, and you are welcome.